Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. We are finally going to read more than the first three or four words. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. And you he made alive. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Christians there at the church of Ephesus. He's talking to the people in the church. And then also that is extended universally uh, to uh, the saints at all places and at all times. You, God, or excuse me, you is talking about the saints. He is talking about God. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And so we've been focused on that first statement there about being dead in trespasses and sins and what that means. And what that means is you have to atone for your sins. Your sins have to be atoned for. It is the premise on which this world works. When someone negligently goes out in some way, fashion, or form and hits somebody with their vehicle, there must be atonement. When someone murders someone, there must be atonement, right? Everybody believes this. We deny it, try not to practice it. And of course, it's more ex- extreme in some areas than others, but sin must be atoned for. There must be reconciliation, there must be payment, there must be, and this is a hot word today, totally misunderstood and misapplied, there must be reparations, atonement for sin. Who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. Why were they the children of wrath? Because sin must be atoned for. So you'll notice there's two distinctions that are being made here in Ephesians chapter 2. Those whom God has made alive, those who were dead, those who were walking according to the course of this world, those who were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, those who were the sons of disobedience, those who fulfilled the lusts of the flesh and of the mind, those who were children of wrath, there's this distinction now between those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ and those who are still the children of wrath. And the difference and the distinction is this word that we have been considering, 
that has been lost in our vocabulary and it has been uh, it's trying to be removed from our worldviews. This word atonement. You see, there's a distinction being made. There's either atonement in Christ or there is going to be an atoning in wrath. Notice when God talks about those who were dead in trespasses and sins, even though they were wicked, filthy, rotten, despicable sinners, just like everyone else, deserving of God's wrath, but God has made them alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Even though they were dead in trespasses and sins, and even though they were just like others who are the children of wrath, it says, but God, in verse number 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. He repeats it again. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved uh, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The thing I want to point out this morning as we consider and hopefully finish up our, uh, our look at this word atonement is to understand, we have understood some things. First of all, that, that atonement is built into the created order, that, that this was established before God had even created the heavens and the earth. And we've also looked at the aspect of, of the, dual, uh, the dual aspect of uh, atonement, um, which is uh, righteousness and judgment, And so what I want us to notice here this morning as we try to finish up our thoughts on the word atonement is that atonement is all about fulfillment. Okay, now atonement is about the other things that we have mentioned in previous weeks. It's, it's about creation. It's about the sacred order. It's about righteousness. It's about justice. It's about justification. It's about wrath. It's about penalty. It's about punishment. It's about sacrifices. It's about blood. It's about all those things we've discussed. But ultimately, atonement from a Christian point of view in that we have been atoned is that atonement is about fulfillment. And this is what every Christian needs to understand in relation to their atonement, that it is about fulfillment. We've been talking in Sunday school about the world that God created, and then it fell because of Adam's sin. And then ever since then, God has been working through his redemptive plan to reorder it, to recreate it in Christ all things are made, being made new in Jesus Christ. As Christians, that is the very first principle of understanding what it means to be a Christian. 
that you become a new creature. We read, you must be born again. To become a new creature in Christ. And then, as new creatures in Christ, what is our purpose? To become a part of this work of reconciliation. Reconciling this world back to God. That is the reason why Jesus commissioned his disciples to do that. Atonement is about fulfillment. It's God fulfilling his promises. It's God doing that which he has said that he would do. It's the will and purpose of God having been perfected and completed. You see, atonement is all about fulfillment, the fulfilling of God's decree from before the foundation of the world in sending Jesus Christ to atone for sins. Now we've considered the importance of why the necessity or why there is a necessity of atonement, which is sin. Sin must be atoned for. That is the reason why you have built into you. Now I know it's distorted. I know sin has affected it. But As a creature who is created in God's image, it's the reason why you have a natural inclination of revenge. You're not going to hear that in too many sermons in today's world. Is God not vengeful? Hmm? Does he not take revenge? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's in the Bible. (laughs) Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Sin must be atoned for. And so you have this natural inclination for that. That's why when you're watching the news and you see some of the despicable, horrible things that are going on in our world, and your response is they ought to just take him out and string him up. That's the reason why you respond that way. Like when they catch a guy that has horribly, viciously raped little children and you boil up in anger. Why? Sin must be atoned for. There is a natural anger. There is a natural vengeance that is associated with sin. So when God responds in wrath, he is responding to something that is right and good. Now, I know man can distort it in his own sinfulness. And we can use our anger wrongly and sinfully. But there is a righteous indignation. Paul says to be angry and sin not. So you can be angry and not sin. Is God, does God ever get angry? The Bible says he does. Did he get angry with the children of Israel? There was one time, remember this? There was one time when Moses was pleading for the children of Israel because God's like, you know what, Moses? 
you're right. This is a rebellious, stiff-necked people. Let's kill them all and start over. And the boat, Moses was like, oh, you know, he appeals to the Lord's compassion and mercy. <laughs> See, it was, a, it was the right response, right? Of course, this is being weeded out of our whole culture, even so much so that, you know, as a parent, it's like you're supposed to never, never say anything above a whisper. Now, honey, don't do that. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. No, there are times it's like, hey! Stop it. Right? That's a natural response. <laughs> it's a natural response to things that are wrong. Now, you have to know what's right and wrong in order to be able to have a right response in relation to that. But sin must be atoned for. And when we talk about Christian atonement, when we're talking about those who have been made alive by God, who were dead in trespasses and sins, because God is rich in his grace and in his mercy and has granted unto us the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ... Atonement for us is about fulfillment. It's the fulfillment of God's promises to sinful man that if he would turn back to him, submit himself to God's remedy, that our sins would be atoned for. This purpose and plan was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it was the fulfilling of righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice is being fulfilled right now in the earth. And I know we don't think so, but it is because we're told that all power and all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. See, we have this false idea today that God came, that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father just to excuse everybody. But that's not true. Jesus did not come to excuse everybody, because that's another way of saying this, that, God, uh, that Jesus Christ came to destroy the law and the prophets. It's like, yeah... <laughs> Oh my goodness, that Old Testament stuff, that was a bad idea. One time I did this. I'm not going to do it now because I like this one. Um, But uh, one time I did this, and I actually took a Bible and ripped it in half and threw the Old Testament over there and all that kind of stuff. And um, Anyway, um, I'm not going to go through all that today. but, but but, But it's as if Jesus came along and said, yeah, that Old Testament stuff, that was a bad idea. Boy, was God foolish. I mean, he messed up. He messed this all up. You know, so we got to get rid of all that stuff so that we can do it the right way. No. He said, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. Oh, that's a big difference, right? That is something completely different. 
And then Jesus says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Um, Someone look outside. There's still things up there in the sky? Someone look out and make sure the ground's still there. Has heaven and earth passed away? No, it hasn't passed away. Now, what we'll start doing, though, is then talk about, well, when's it going to? It's like, well, it hasn't. You know, it hasn't passed away. And so Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In other words, you must have a sacrifice. There must be the shedding of blood. Sin must be atoned for. And that God's righteousness and holiness is the standard by which we base all those things. So he didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now listen, as I'm going to go down through this list, try to go through as hurriedly as I can, um, of the Gospels. So in Luke chapter 1, we read this. As Luke is giving his dedication to Theopolis for the account of the Gospel that he wrote in the Gospel of Luke, He says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Now listen to all this. Matthew 1, verse 21. So it was done that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And it goes on and on and on about his name be Emmanuel, God with us. But notice the words, that it might be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew 2.17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, talking about when Jesus came into the city of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John was thrown into prison, he sent his disciples to Jesus and Jesus to ask him some questions. And Jesus went forth preaching the key kingdom of God is at hand saying this the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel in Luke chapter 4 and verse 21 he began to say to them today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13 through 15 it says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet talking about light coming into the world in matthew chapter 8 verse 17 it says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by isaiah the prophet in matthew chapter 12 17 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by isaiah the prophet in matthew chapter 13 and verse 14 and in them the prophecy of isaiah is fulfilled Matthew chapter 13 and verse 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Matthew 21, 4, all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Luke chapter 22 and verses 15 through 17, he said to his disciples at the uh, Passover, he says, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I go to the cross. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Matthew 26, verse 54. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen like this? 
Mark chapter 14, 41. I was in the temple daily with you teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Matthew 26, 56. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Mark 15, 28. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Matthew 27, verse 9. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Matthew 27, 35. They crucified him, divided his garments, and cast lots, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. And that's just a small sampling. Over and over and over again, the emphasis in the Gospels is about the fulfillment of that which had been spoken before. And Jesus said, I did not come to destroy it. Jesus said, listen, if you would have, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me. The reason why you don't believe me is because you don't believe Moses. Why? Because he came to fulfill it. He didn't come to destroy it. He did not come to defy that which God had established. You see, atonement is what makes a proper distinction in the world. And we need to make sure that we are understanding this aspect of atonement in fulfillment. Because there are only two options. Either the sinner is atoned by the righteousness of Christ or the sin will be atoned by the justice of God upon the sinner. For those who are atoned or rather made righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the imputation of our sins upon him as our sacrifice. You see, Jesus Christ came to provide righteousness for us and also to execute and make sure justice was executed. That is the reason why his righteousness is imputed to us so that we can be made righteous and therefore approved by God and accepted by God because God cannot accept unrighteousness. God cannot dwell with sin. Therefore, we must be made righteousness, and Christ provided our righteousness for us if we look to him and live. But Jesus Christ also took our sins upon us, just like the scapegoat in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system. The sins of the people would be laid upon the scapegoat. And that goat would suffer for the sins of the people. Now we know that that was ceremonial, symbolic, and representative, just as all the sacrificial system was. But it was representative to show us the need for atonement. And so our sins were laid upon Christ. And he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. So that righteousness and justice would be fulfilled. Because there must be righteousness and justice. And so we are redeemed based on that account. 
The only way in which you can be redeemed is if you look to Christ and are the recipient of his righteousness and he the recipient of your sins. God has fulfilled, perfected, and completed his intention of creating a people unto himself. That is what atonement is all about, is so that God can make him a people. Just like originally in creation, when God created himself a people, man, Adam, and Eve, and man was given a mandate to be God's representative on this earth, to be God's agent, to be his people, his creation in submission to him in order to have dominion and to rule over this earth and to order it according to the will of God. But man sinned and fell and was separated from God, incapable of doing that which God had created him to do, but God has sent Jesus Christ in order to atone, therefore to redeem a people once again unto himself, even though they were dead in trespasses and sins. To create a people unto himself. You see, the redeemed, those whose sins have been atoned for through Jesus Christ, are the people of God. They're this new creation. They're this new reordering of mankind. They are the true Israel of God. This was God's intention from the very beginning as he began his work in the Old Testament. When he first made the promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and as he provided blood sacrifices for Adam and Eve, and then as he called Abraham out from among the pagans to make this people unto himself, this people of faith. And God's intention from the very beginning was to make this people of faith from throughout the whole world of every tribe, of every nation, of every language. In the very beginning, in Genesis 3, verse 16, God says, I will make your seed, talking to Abraham, as the dust of the earth, so that no man can even number it. He said it will be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. And we find all throughout the Old Testament, God bringing this people of faith together from all nations. You have Uriah the Hittite. You have Ruth the Moabite. We are told in the law that there would be one law for those who were born in the land and for foreigners who come in to become the people of God. You find all kinds of prophetic language about strangers not part of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would be brought into this people. And so we are told when Jesus came that he came into his own, but his own received him not. But as many as receive him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the reason why is because this people of God is based upon faith. It is a spiritual people. Too many times we've been clouded and people are so confused. This was the heresy of the Pharisees in Jesus's day that they thought being a people of God meant that you were a physical Jew. And that is absolutely entirely false, contrary to all of scripture. It was about being a people of faith. Notice in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7 through 9. And the reason why it's about being a people of faith is because all are sinners. As Paul says, both Jews and Gentiles, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, yours, and, and, and every sinner's sins must be atoned for. And so in Galatians chapter 3, listen to what Paul says. He says, do you not know that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham? In other words, these are the people who have been atoned for in a positive sense. They have been a, their sins have been atoned for in order to bring them into a relationship with God. To make them the people of God. And then it goes on to say, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Galatians 3.29, Paul says, And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this is the promise. Hosea chapter 1 and verse number 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. And Paul explains exactly what that means in Romans chapter 9. For example, in verse number 6, he says, Not as though the word had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, not all physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are truly the Israel of God. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall his seed be called, that is... They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And then, a few verses later, he quotes Hosea, where we just mentioned in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not my beloved, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Listen to how Peter describes Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. He says, You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, which we pointed out last week. That still means there is some sacrificial system still happening and occurring, right? It's not been done away with. You just need to have the right sacrifice. 
Wherefore, it, also contained, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded, talking about Christ. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, talking about Christ again. And he's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you, talking about Christians, those who believe in Christ, those who have been born again in Christ Jesus, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are the people of God because they have been atoned for by Jesus Christ to bring them into reconciliation with God. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28, Paul says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. He also says in Romans 4, verse 12, and I know today is just a bunch of scripture, but I'm trying to drive home the point. He says in Romans chapter 4, and verse 12, and the father of circumcision, talking about Abraham, that he's the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. In Romans chapter 8, Paul again makes another statement about this. He says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, Because you are sons, talking to these Galatians, who were a Celtic people, they were not Jews, they were not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, physically, But he says to them, because you are sons, God has set forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Paul concludes this understanding in Philippians 3, verse 3, where he says, for we talking about Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 6 verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Jews and Gentiles who believe and follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has atoned for them and has redeemed them out of bondage. Has redeemed them out of the bondage of Satan into the kingdom of Christ's glorious light. They have been redeemed. Their sins have been atoned for. They have been granted righteousness. They have Uh, They have a a sacrifice for their sins. Therefore, justice has been executed upon their sins. And they have been restored 
to a, in a right fellowship with God as his people. So when we talk about atonement, when we talk about Christ having atoned for our sins, what we are talking about is this, that Jesus Christ has made you through his righteousness and his sacrifice. He has made you, he has redeemed you as the people of God. So what does this mean then? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus Christ has came to accomplish all that was promised in the Old Testament. Therefore, we are to learn by the examples that was given unto us in the Old Covenant with all of its symbology, with all of its uh, um, uh, we're to make application from all the symbology to understand what it means for us to be the people of God, just like the children of Israel were called out of bondage from Egypt. And what were they told to do once they were delivered by God? When God redeemed them, when God saved them, when he baptized them under the cloud and under the water, what were they to go do? They were to go and take possession of the land because they are the people of God, which is what God told Abraham originally to take possession of the earth. And then as God begins to make things new and start over again, he tells the children of Israel to go into Canaan and take possession of it. Of course, they didn't immediately. They were disobedient. And God had to correct them. But they were told to go take possession of the land, right? They were told as the people of God to represent God. Just as we are told in Hebrews chapter 10 that we should have boldness to enter the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus Christ, the presence of God, to come into the presence of God. That's what we are supposed to be doing here this morning is coming into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest... (laughs) So we need someone to go to the Lord on our behalf, right? Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So why that language about blood and sacrifices and the holiest of holies and the high priest and the assembling of ourselves together? Because then we are warned as the people of God. 
just as the children of Israel were warned over and over again as the people of God in the Old Testament, so too then we are warned here in Hebrews chapter 10 as the people of God. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who, has reje- anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an uncommon thing, or a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then he makes this statement, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words... All the things we read about the children of Israel in the Old Testament. What the apostle wanted us to know is this. However responsible and accountable they were under that old promissory covenant. We are way more accountable and responsible under the fulfilled covenant. Jesus has accomplished all things necessary for the reconciliation of the world to God. We have a perfect high priest. We have a perfect, complete sacrifice. We have a completed form of worship for the atonement of our sins through Jesus Christ. Christ. We have the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the power thereof. We have everything. Just as in the context of the Old Testament at that specific time in that specific place, Israel had everything they needed to go take the land. History is nothing but Genesis 3. Over and over and over and over again. God telling his people, go take dominion of the land. And his people rebelling and refusing. God providing everything that is necessary. But his people being disobedient. We got other things to do. We got better things to do. When the truth of the matter is, is that our affections are not upon Christ and his righteousness. It's not upon the kingdom of God. But it's on our own pleasures, our own desires, and our own affections. You see, Jesus said to the people that he came to atone for. He said, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen.
all things have been provided for us. The problem is, is we don't have a proper view and understanding of the atonement. And Paul clarifies this for us when he says this in Galatians 2.20. Remember, Christ's death on the cross was to atone for our sins. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A proper understanding of the atonement should cause us not to live for ourselves, but to live for Christ. It's the reason why we have been atoned, to become the people of God, in order to take dominion of the earth, subdue it, and fill it with Christians. Father, We are a very disobedient people. After all these years of history, we're still no better than the children of Israel wandering around in the wilderness. And yet you have provided all things in perfection through Jesus Christ for us. To do your work, to receive of your blessings. But yet we, most of the time, count the atonement of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood as a common thing. So Lord, we pray that you would forgive our sinfulness and that you would forgive our disobedience. And may you draw us closer as we come to this table to remember the death of Christ in partaking of this bread and of this cup, symbolizing his body being broken for us and his blood being shed for us. May he help us as we come to this table to reckon ourselves to be crucified with Christ so that it's not we who live anymore, but it's we who live in Christ and for Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.